right. Good evening, New Life Church. Uh, what a gift to be here. Um, I have to confess from the beginning here, uh, it's different here uh, than in New York City. I've been out of breath the entire day today. Uh, I just, I mean, I was walking in the hotel and just, you know, got a snack and I was just huffing and puffing. I was just like, what in the world? Went on Google and uh, figure out how high we are. We are high. We are really high. And, um, and, but I, I'm here and it's a great, to, a great joy to be here. Those of you wa- are watching online, welcome. Uh, special love to my wife, Rosie, who's watching from Queens. And so <clears throat> to you, baby, love you. Uh, see you tomorrow. Uh, I uh, love this church and I love your, your pastors, I'm dear friends with all of them. And you guys have uh, an embarrassment of riches in terms of the leaders uh, that are leading you in the way of Christ and serving you. Uh, and so can we get up, give it up for your pastors here who are just, what a gift they are uh, to all the congregations at New Life, and it's a, a gift to uh, be in friendship with them. Uh, tonight, I want to talk to you uh, along a, a theme out of Psalm 27 uh, of what it means to dwell with God and behold God, to dwell with God and to behold God. There's a lot of things that we're beholding these days that are not leading us into wholeness, not leading us into uh, justice, not leading us into great peace, lots of things we're beholding. But what does it mean to behold God uh, for the sake of beholding the world in love? And so today I wanna look at Psalm 27. It's actually the first uh, chapter in the book of Psalms or in the entire Bible that my grandfather had me memorize. When I became a Christian at 19 years old, my grandfather would disciple me some four and five times a week for two to three hours each time, and he would have entire Psalms for me to memorize. This was the first Psalm that he had me memorize, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach out of the first four verses out of Psalm 27, verses one through four, what it means to behold God in a very distracted world. And so Psalm 27, beginning of verse number one, says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an army should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing, somebody say one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me keep going. For in time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted around me, round about me. Therefore, I shall offer praises in this tabernacle of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Verse 4, one thing have I desired that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Lord, breathe on us, would you? Speak to us through the power of your spirit. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive every gift you have for us this day. Lord, we've already met you in great power in this place. Now give us the revelation we need to live as faithful followers of your son Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. 
In his wonderful book, A Hidden Wholeness, the Quaker author Parker Palmer tells a story about farmers in the Midwest who would prepare for massive blizzards by tying a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn as a guide to ensure that they could return home safely. The reason he did that was because the blizzards came quickly and fiercely and were highly dangerous. And when the blizzards were in their full force blowing, the farmer could not see at the end of his or her hand. Many would freeze to death in these blizzards, disoriented by their inability to see. They wandered in circles, sometimes lost in their own backyard. And if they lost the grip on the rope, it became impossible for them to find their way home. Some would freeze within feet of their front door, never realizing how close they were to safety. And so they needed a rope, something to keep them tethered to their home because of the unpredictable nature of the blizzard. And as I read that book again recently, I thought about the ways that we often lose the grip on the rope, the things that keep us tethered to home, the things that keep us tethered to God, that we all need a rope. Now, whether you know it or not, we are in a blizzard. We are caught in many different kinds of blizzards in the world we're in. We are caught in the blizzard of political idolatry. Caught in a blizzard of racial hostility. Caught in a blizzard of technological insanity. <laughs> caught in a blizzard of social and individual anxiety. And many of us have lost our way in the blizzard. Many of us have lost who we are and have not found our way home. And so we have to be tethered to God. What is the rope that keeps us tethered to God? The rope is prayer. And I want to talk about prayer as a means of keeping us anchored and dwelling in God in the midst of a world that's marked by an incredible amount of blizzards. Unless our lives are marked by a sense of dwelling, a sense of abiding, a sense of remaining in God, we have no hope for the world. We have no hope to be marked by followers of Jesus and offering that love to the world around us. We have no hope if we are not tethered to God in prayer. Our lives were meant to abide. Yes, yes. It was Henry Nouwen who said that prayer is not a pious decoration of life, but the breath of human existence. And when I think about followers of Jesus, especially in the scriptures, I see the ways that they were connected to Christ, and yet even throughout all their relational connection with him, they still lost their way. Yeah. I was doing some theological math the other day. And I was thinking about how much time the disciples spent with Jesus. And here's the very simple equation that I came, uh, came up with here. If the disciples spent eight hours a day for 365 days a year over a three-year period, they would have spent 8,760 hours with Jesus. And with all that time they spent with him, they still had gaps. With all that time that they spent with him, Peter was still cursing and cutting people's ears off. 
With all that time, the sons of thunder said, Lord, they're not with you. Can we burn these people? Should we call down fire on these people? With all the time that they had with Jesus, it still was not enough. And this is a good word for all of us watching online and in this room, that one hour on a Sunday just isn't enough. We need a life that abides with God, a life that remains in him. And this is what David teaches us in Psalm 27. And the invitation for us is we, we become who we were meant to be when our lives are focused on beholding God. And that's what I want to show you tonight. We become who we behold and what we behold. David begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. These are words of, of trouble, war, words of battle, words of pressure. This is a national emergency, what David is describing in the first three verses in the book of Psalms. These are words that describe our lives. The pressures are unrelenting. The conflict is ever-present. And in moments of pressure, moments of conflict, and moments of disorientation, what keeps you grounded? In David's case, he's grounded because he has a life with God. He's grounded in such a way that his life is not dominated by fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But then, in the blink of an eye, the scene shifts. Because in one moment he's in the battlefield and then we figure out why David is able to live without fear. It shifts from the battlefield to the sanctuary. And we see the secret of why David is able to live free from fear in a world that's marked by unrelenting conflict and battles. The reason he's not succumbing to that is because he finds himself in the sanctuary. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. One thing. He attends to the presence of God. One thing have I desired. Last year, I was on a sabbatical, and I spent some time praying at a monastery in the Boston area. And there was a a, a, a Christian monk who was leading the time and he led me in a particular prayer and he was teaching about five or six people who are on retreat. He said, I'm going to teach you a prayer and I want you to pray this the rest of the week. He said, it's a simple prayer. And this is what he said. He said, I want you to pray. I am nothing. I have nothing. I desire nothing except the love of Jesus. He said, just pray that I am nothing, I have nothing, I desire nothing except the love of Jesus. He said, the prayer starts with nothing and ends with everything. I am nothing, I have nothing, I desire nothing except the love of Jesus. I love David here because David desires this. But he doesn't just desire it, he seeks it. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after. A lot of us desire stuff, but we don't seek it. I desire to have a buff body. <laughs> and my wife, honey, it's, it's buff enough for you, uh, I hope. Uh, but, but I don't seek after it. 
It's easy to desire something but not seek after it. But David desires it and he seeks after it. And he seeks to dwell with the living God. I want to dwell with you. The word dwell is one of the most important words in the entire Psalms and in the entire Bible. In the book of John 15, Jesus talks about abide in me and I in you. And it's a word that comes up over and over in the gospel of John. The word abide, remain, dwell. It comes up in the gospel of John, not 10 times, not 20 times, not 30 times, not 40 times, not 50 times, some 66 times. The word abide, remain, dwell in me comes up in the gospel of John. This is what David wants to do. I want to dwell with God because that is the place where transformation takes place. I think about this on a regular basis. Matter of fact, I think about this almost every morning. Almost every morning, I, my, my husband's duty is to make my wife a cup of tea. Any tea drinkers in the house here? Any tea drinkers? Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I make my wife uh, a cup of tea. And, and for those of, you tea, uh, those of you tea drinkers, you know that there's two ways to make tea. I'm going to get real deep on you. Two ways to make tea. The first way of making tea is to be a dipper. Take a tea bag and you dip it in and you dip it out. Dip in and dip out. Dip in and dip out. And when you're done with it, if you want to get really sophisticated with it, you, you, you tie it around a spoon, you press down, you throw it out, you take your sip of tea. Glenn's a big tea drinker, right? and, and uh, I, I, I don't know, what, I'll have to talk to you about that later, Glenn, but, but there's a dipping way of, of and, and I think about the spiritual life, many of us are dippers, and I'm a dipper when it comes to tea, but in the spiritual life, we dip in church, we dip out of church, we dip in the Bible, we dip out of the Bible, we dip into this, we dip out to that. That's one way of making tea, and transformation is based on our terms, however we like it, we dip in, we dip out, and then we, we drink the tea. But there's another way of drinking tea. And that is to be a dweller. To let the tea bag just steep there. Sit there. And it's amazing to see that if you just let it wait there, the, the, the composition of the water begins to change. Without any effort of your own doing. I was having a conversation with someone. He said, I don't like my tea bag to steep because it gets too strong. And I said, oh, my Lord. A revelation came to me. Because when you're dwelling with God, sometimes his presence gets strong. And you find yourself doing stuff that you could not do in your own strength. When you dwell with God, you start forgiving people you used to hate. You start giving money when you used to be stingy. You start announcing the gospel to people when you used to be timid. Because the very composition of your life begins to change when you dwell with God. And so the invitation for us is to just allow ourselves to dwell, to behold the beauty of God and to allow the power of God and the presence of God to begin to change the very composition of our lives. David says, one thing have I desired and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then here's the second word, to behold. Dwelling and beholding. Now, all of us in this room and everyone watching online, you know how to behold. Beholding is not something we have to be taught. We know how to behold. For many of us, we know how to behold our laptops and our computers. Many of us are, are fixed on those screens. 
watching the whatever we're watching. We know how to behold. Or whether it's our smartphones that we're beholding on a regular basis, we know how to behold. Children know how to behold. I mean, this is bad parenting. This is a picture of me discipling my daughter some, uh, some years ago. I've got this picture on the screen there, just me and my daughter, just uh, this a number of years ago. This is bad parenting, people, and she's just beholding. This is bad discipleship right here. We know how to behold. The question is not whether we know how to behold or not. The question is, is what we are beholding leading to freedom? Or is it leading us to a life of captivity? What have you been beholding? We become what we behold. My cousin, uh, some years ago, he was playing this game called Grand Theft Auto. You, ever, you guys played that in Colorado? I don't know. And as he's playing, he was playing for about three, four hours straight. And it's a violent game. And it's uh, lots of shooting, lots of guns, all that stuff. And he's playing it for three, four hours. And it came to a point where I said, uh, hey, Matt, uh, it's time to get off. And when I touched his shoulder, he said, get off of me. He was beholding it for four hours. He was becoming what he was beholding. It makes sense to me. Why, if you're beholding the news over and over and over again, why is the world so divided? Well, if you're watching CNN nonstop, you're going to find yourself angry by 12 noon. If you're beholding Fox News nonstop, you're going to find yourself angry at your neighbor. You become what you behold. And I become what I behold. And I don't care whether it's Fox, CNN, MSNBC. If that's what you are beholding, that's what you and I are going to become. What are you beholding? What's capturing your imagination? What's shaping your soul? What's dominating your mind? David says, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How do we do it? How do we behold God? I want to offer some simple ways for us to behold, to have our lives marked by beholding the beauty of God so we can be so transfigured, as it were, transformed into the beauty of God that we offer something to the world of love and compassion and justice and mercy. How do we behold? The first invitation, very simply, is to befriend silence. How do we dwell and behold? We behold by befriending silence. Three years ago, I was rebuked by a monk. Have you ever been rebuked by a monk before? We had a monk come to our church. I was interviewing him about the contemplative life, slowing down to be with God. And 
over the course of our conversation beforehand, I was telling him what the order of service is going to be. This was very new for him. And we got to a point where we're singing in worship, having a great time, and he's next to me. And I'm looking to the side of him thinking, oh, I know he's loving this. I know he's loving this. And we got to a point where we were singing the words, I will be still and know that you are God. And uh, there are too many good singers here. I'm not going to go and sing it here. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but I will be still and know you are God. And we sang it, the song, I will be still, know you are God. And then we went right into the next song and just started singing some more. At the end of the, uh, the service, we went down to the lobby area. We were shaking hands with congregants. This monk had a massive iPad that he was taking. Very strange. He had an iPad. He was taking pictures of everyone there. And at the end, I said, I, I said uh, Father William, uh, I hope you enjoy that. He said, Rich, uh, could I have a word with you? Now, this is his first time at the church. Okay, first time at the church. He's about 70-something years old. And he said, can I have a word? I noticed, why don't you practice what you sing? I said, you can go home, old man. I, 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 didn't, I didn't invite you for this. He said, I noticed you saying, I will be still and know that you are God. Why weren't you still? After you sang, I will be still. And I was deeply convicted because I know what it's like to sing stuff I don't live and preach stuff I don't live. And the reality is for many of us, we have a hard time dwelling with God and beholding God because we don't know how to befriend silence. But you could argue that the more comfortable you are with silence in someone's presence is an indication of how familiar you are with that person. If I took a car ride with many of you, I don't know, I know a handful of you here, but if we went for a two-hour drive... It would be extremely awkward for us not to talk for a long period of time. We, I mean, the, the, the awkwardness would get so thick in the car that we would want to talk about anything to avoid the anxiety of awkwardness. And so, because we don't know each other, we're going to speak. But if I'm driving with my wife over long periods of time, we could share silence with one another because we know each other. What does it say about our lives with God when we can't make space for silence with God? Maybe we're not as familiar with God as we think we are. And the invitation for us is to behold silence and befriend silence. I think about what Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa was, was being interviewed one day about her prayer life. They wanted to know, what does Mother Teresa do when she prays? And so the guy asked, what do you say when you pray to God? And Mother Teresa said, I don't say anything, I listen. And the person was so struck by that answer, he was like, oh, then, then, then what does God say to you as you're listening? And Mother Teresa said, nothing. God listens. And the guy was so perplexed. What do, you, what do you mean? You're listening to God listen? And she said, if, I, if you don't understand it that way, there's no other way that I can explain what prayer is. Listening to God listen. A sharing of presence, of being with God. And the invitation for us 
is to slow down to be with God. And, and what this invites us to is to not just recognize the external noise, but the internal noise. It was Joan Chitterster who said it this way. The noise outside of us is not the enemy. It is the noise within. Our desires that plague us, our worries that deplete us, our thoughts that agitate us, that we must calm. How do we dwell well with God and behold God? By befriending silence. But the second thing that I want to invite you to consider is not just befriending silence, but how do we behold God and dwell well with God? Secondly, we are invited to normalize boredom. To normalize boredom. What I mean by that is that prayer is often uneventful. And if we're always expecting prayer to be very exciting... We are now using God and limiting God to a transaction. And God cannot be limited to a transaction. Our relationship with God are not often based on intimacy, but transactionalism. I do this, God, you do that. But more often than not, prayer is uneventful. Nothing happens that we can see in prayer. We often see it in retrospect. And so we are called to normalize boredom. And the invitation for us is very simple. Uh, Brennan Manning has asked this question. He's a writer on some spiritual things. And he said, it, it, the question we must ask ourselves on a regular basis is this. Do I worship God or do I worship my experience of God? How do you know you're worshiping your experience of God? When the experiences are not there, you no longer need God. Or you no longer want God. And so the invitation is to normalize boredom. And this is something that I'm called to on a regular basis, that it is uneventful. But what's happening beneath the surface is actually powerful if you stick with it. Imagine for a moment uh, if, if you had uh, a parent who was living in an assisted living facility in New York City. And you live in Colorado Springs. Uh, or, or let's say your, your sibling lives in Colorado Springs. You live in New York City with your parent. And your parent is there every single day at this assisted living facility. And after work, you go to visit mom. How many times in a given year do you think you're having a stimulating conversation with mom? Something that's just getting you really excited. Once, maybe, twice in a year. For the most part, you're talking about the kids, you're talking about the weather, you're talking about what's happening in the news, but you're, you're with mom day in and day out for one to two hours each day after work. And nothing seems to be happening on the surface. But your sibling who conveniently lives in Colorado Springs <laughs> annually takes a trip to see mom in New York City. And when that sibling gets to the assisted living facility because that sibling has not seen mom in over a year. When that sibling sees mom, they're crying. Oh, so mom, I miss you so much. I'm so happy to see you. And you're crying. They're all emotional. And any outside observer would ask, would think that person has a closer relationship with mom than the person who shows up every single day. But in all actuality, the one who has a deeper relationship with mom is not the one who's crying all the time. It's the one who's just saying, mom, how are you today? And talking about nothing. I learned this. Listen, I, I come from a charismatic Pentecostal tradition that I used to believe that the people who are crying the most. Come on, somebody. Were the people who were closest to God. It just turns out they haven't been there in two years. So they're making it up. Lord, I'm so sorry. 
And you're thinking, this person knows God. No, this person hasn't been here in two years. And so never mistake closeness to God based on emotional expression. Because some of the deepest work that takes place is behind the scenes where no one sees you. And how do we do that? By, by normalizing boredom. That prayer is often uneventful. It was John of the Cross who said, when you reach a certain point of life, the deeper things now lie under the surface. And that's what we're invited to, to a life of normalizing boredom. But here's the last thing I want to offer to you, and then we're going to take communion. We're invited to befriend silence. We're invited to normalize boredom. But thirdly, how do we dwell well with God? Well, we remember that God is always beholding you with eyes of love. God is always beholding you with eyes of love. We behold God because God is always beholding us first. Our beholding of God is always in response to God beholding us. I was reminded of this last year. My son, Nathan, he's six years old, last year in kindergarten, he had a it was a dad take your child to school day. And over the course of the time there, I walked into the class and, the, you know, every dad had their, um, you know, the dressed up doctors and PowerPoint slides. I was thinking, this is, this, I, I didn't come prepared. This is terrible. And uh, I, I wish I brought my Bible, you know. And, and I, I got to uh, the class and I noticed as I'm looking around that my son Nathan was staring at me. He could not get his eyes off of me. And this is a picture of my son Nathan here. He could not get his eyes. And my first response was, son, pay attention. Come on, son, pay attention. Look, look over here, pay attention. But to see his dad in that classroom was such a special thing to him that he could not get his eyes off of me. And there came a point where my eyes locked with his eyes. And there was a beautiful exchange of love and intimacy in that moment where I began to just see him because the whole time he was watching me and beholding me. And, and for a moment, it might have maybe, maybe 10, 15 seconds or so, we were transfixed, father and son, transfixed with one another. And the only reason why I was beholding him was because he was first beholding me. And when I thought about my son, Nathan, I thought about God. The story throughout the Bible is that we often behold everything except God. We behold everything except God. But regardless of whatever we're beholding, God can't get his eyes off of you. The, the story of the scriptures is that God cannot get his eyes off of you and God wants to dwell with you. And why do we behold God? Simply because God has always been beholding you in love. I don't know how you see God beholding you. Maybe you see God beholding you with, a, with, with, with anger. And some of you, maybe you're coming to church for the first time. Maybe you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time. And you're thinking, God is beholding me not with love but with disappointment. But the reason why we're able to behold God is because God has first beheld us. And this is what David says. David can behold God because he knows that the love of God is for him and with him. The Lord is my light 
and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat of my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though wars shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing, one thing, one thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want to end with an image that I learned from St. Thomas Aquinas. Because we're called to behold God not as an end, but out of beholding God, we now behold the world in love. Thomas Aquinas essentially said that the call of the Christian is to contemplate God and to share the fruit of one's contemplation. And this is the image that he gives. The image is we are beholding God in this way. And this is the call of the Christian, to behold God in this way. And after beholding God, we look at the world around us and we essentially say, would you like some of that? Would you like some of that? To behold and to share the fruit of our contemplation. And the world needs Christians who know how to behold God and behold the world in love. The world will be transformed not because we vote a certain way. The world will be transformed not because we do things this or that. The world will ultimately be transformed as followers of Christ. Behold the beauty of God and look out in the world and say, would you like some of that? This is what we do with communion. At the Lord's table, we behold the beauty of God and what God has done for us. And in a moment, we're going to behold the bread and the cup. And it's more than just a wafer and a little drink here. It's us remembering something has happened in Jesus Christ definitively. And we want to behold him with eyes of love and allow ourselves to be transformed by his presence. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are present to us. And we confess this evening that we often behold things that keep us from you. In our state of sin, we behold other things, and yet the gospel reminds us that you have always had your eye on us. Lord, we come to your table with great humility and gratitude, and we ask that as we behold you, you would so transform us and that we would in turn behold the world in love and that through our very lives, the world would move towards greater healing, reconciliation, flourishing, beauty, love. We thank you for your grace and the ways that you're with us today. We pray these things. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.